0: All right, hey friends! Welcome back to Mike's podcast. It is good to have you here, and I know I need to come up with a more creative name at some point than that because uh, a bunch of you told me you search for it on iTunes and you can't find it because I'm probably like down at like 147,000 um, of searches if you look for Mike in podcasts. Anyways, uh, I am excited to have uh, a friend of mine here, Dr. Curtis Holson, and. Um, I got to know Curtis uh, over 20 years ago when I was a student of his at Hope International University, and um, I, I was I was just reflecting this morning that um, uh, the class that I had with you was apologetics, and I remember, and I think that this will I think this will help set us up well here. I remember I went into it like expecting and hoping for apologetics to be like I'm gonna. I'm going to walk out of here being able to tell all the atheists how dumb they are and, um, and show everybody like, I'm going to have all the answers to convince everybody of how right I am. And um, you have a very different posture than that. And, um, uh, and as I was sort of reflecting back on, on sort of those experiences with you early on, I think one of the things that I didn't realize at the time that I'm really appreciative for now is, um, You were one of the people who early on started to give me room for like a less dogmatic faith and started to show me the potential for something that could be more beautiful and more honest and even like really like more interesting. And um, that's part of why I'm excited to have you on here because I think um, the people I know who are listening to this podcast will have a real appreciation for you. So anyways, that long introduction to say thanks thanks for hanging out with me today.
1: Yeah. Wow. What a great introduction. Uh, I'm afraid it's only going to go downhill from there. So, but, uh, (laughs) yeah, starting, starting on a high note, I I remember that class. I think that was the second time I taught it. Um, yeah, I always, I always kind of had the philosophy of apologetics that you, you can't ask other people to ponder and consider questions you haven't really pondered and considered. Hmm. So I kind of wanted the students to form an apology for themselves before they start working it out for other people.
0: Yeah, I like that a lot, and um, and we got things that that we want to talk about, but but um, that it makes me think like I had up until that point I had bought a bunch of like the Norman Geisler books, mm-hmm. right? Like the um, here's the question that I'm going to get asked that it's like, hey, God tells the Israelites to massacre every man, woman, and child, and even the animals here. And, like, isn't that a horrible God? And then he's got this nice little neat paragraph for, like, here's how you answer that question. And so you, like, just go through and you find all your sort of questions. And it doesn't actually require you to grapple with your faith yourself. It doesn't require you to right. um, to ask, like, questions of the text and let the text sort of sit on its own. And, yeah, I, I really appreciate that. How, how did have you always been like that? Have you been a person that questions, or like what sort of like caused you to like approach faith in that sort of a way?
1: Uh that's yeah, that's an interesting answer or question. I I haven't pondered that too much. Uh, I I remember around my my senior year of of college, and I I had a uh, a bit of a, a personal crisis, which which led to some some spiritual questions and things like that. And so I I started asking some people some things and, and I was disappointed in how often I got shut down. Hmm. Uh, People who weren't open to not only engaging with my question, but even hearing my question. Uh, And then pretty soon I started getting excited about the fact that there was maybe more than one approach to a question. So, um, you know, things like the historicity of, of certain texts in the Bible that, okay. that you, you'd kind of look at and you'd go, wait a minute, Job uh, may not have been a historical figure. This may be a person uh, or this, this may be a, uh, a dramatic narrative to, to explore some questions. And I would I would be excited about this. And I would go to some people and say, isn't this interesting? And they were shutting me down. So there was probably a little bit of rebelliousness in me that was thinking <laughs> uh well, wait a minute the more you want to shut this down the more interested i become in in these sort of questions uh, but somehow and i and i think it was with some of the professors i had it at hope or pcc yeah. when i went where they they pushed us to to think about some some issues and some questions and uh, but yeah, i'm I'm not sure if it's just in my DNA or the way I was raised or uh, I bumped my head, and one day, you know, I was <laughs> skeptical I, I I don't know that's a that's an interesting question
0: it It's interesting because um I would say growing up, I grew up in the church and growing up in the church, I had always thought that um, the way that you have a more robust faith is, um, is things look more dogmatic, you are more sure of things, you have all the Mm -hmm. right answers for things. And I don't know if anybody ever explicitly said that to me, but that was definitely conveyed in a whole lot of non explicit ways. And, um, and what I have come to experience from a lot of people who I have deep respect for is the people who I know, have some of the deepest and most robust faith have have been led into that place by not having all the answers and by having room for questions and by, by doing exactly what you were saying and that, and that the people who had those questions and got shut down, I've often experienced like a loss of faith because there wasn't room for that.
1: Right, right. Yeah. If I had a, a secret hidden philosophy throughout all my years of teaching, it was to help students become comfortable with questions to not take up a, an either or sort of theology that either everything's this way or it's all wrong or either the Bible is 100% accurate or it's nonsense or God can do every single thing or God doesn't exist. And so we have all these false dichotomies. Yeah. And the, the problem is my experience or my, my assessment is when I look at some people who've, who've ended up leaving the faith and I read their stories, it seems like they began their Christian faith with this kind of dogmatic either or sort of thinking. And it, all or nothing is maybe another way of saying it. And when it wasn't all, it became nothing. Yeah. Um, yep. I mean, I think I think Bart Ehrman' his story is kind of like that. So he talks about being very conservative, dogmatic, and when he learned that that wasn't the case, you know, it it kind of all fell apart.
0: Right. Yeah. When he started discovering, if I remember Bart Ehrman's story right, he starts discovering like that there's scholars that question like, oh, did Paul actually write First Timothy? Like maybe he actually didn't, and and that first but like first century was totally fine with him not writing it, but being so dogmatic about Paul had to write this, and then to question the authorship of that like starts to, uh, it's like this one string that starts to unravel all these other things for him that there's, and it's holding everything together. Um, right. Yeah. That it reminds me a bit of art. I'm guessing that you might not be familiar with Richard Rohr. I don't know if he's in your wheelhouse of people I, that you're I know. reading.
1: I know of him. I haven't read much of him.
0: He talks about the need for, um he calls it um, non-dualistic thinking. And it's kind of the idea of like moving beyond the binary sort of like this or that it's A or B and it fits in one of those two categories. And we experience that in all sorts of ways. Like we're experiencing it politically, it's like really dogmatic, progressive, mm-hmm. really dogmatic, conservative, it's this or that. And um, and there's just richer ways to live than that. It seems like, and there's a richer experience of faith. That's a part of that rich experience of life that moves beyond yeah. that.
1: Yeah. I'm opposed to all forms of fundamentalism, whether it's on the right or the left. I mean, I like that. cause, cause fundamentalism is basically just saying, I don't need to think about that anymore. I have my mind made up and I have these truths and, uh-huh. and, uh, anything that begins to upset the foundations that I have, well, that's, that's an enemy. Uh, the, the only thing that I really like about the right is they understand their fundamentalists. The the fundamentalists on the left think that they're progressive <laughs> when they're not. And that get that, that gets a little more frustrating, but, but fundamentalism hmm. regardless is, is problematic.
0: That's really good. I like that. That the idea that fundamentalism is that I've decided not to think anymore—is that how you said it?
1: Yeah, that I have the essentials worked out. There's nothing more to question. There's nothing more to consider. So let me just continue to build my my structure on this on 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 these certain uh, facts that I
0: have, and unfortunately,
1: okay. some of those facts aren't always
0: factual. Hmm. Um, so I want to talk about your book. You had a book that came out um, in December of last year, and it's uh, now it's been out for what are we like seven months? Um, before I get into your book, though, I did have a couple other things I want to ask you first. When I, I've I've passed on your book to several people, and I'll tell them like, oh, this is one of my former professors, and he's a friend of mine, and um, he's a philosophical theologian. And whenever I say, oh, he's a philosophical theologian, they look at me and they say, what's that? And um, I'm like, that. I don't know. I just assume it means he's really smart, that he's smarter than me. But like, what, what is a philosophical theologian? How would, how would that be distinct?
1: Yeah, good. So a philosophical theologian is different from a biblical theologian, just in the sense of what tools they're working with. So a biblical theologian is, is coming to the text with a faith and unpacking the text Trying to understand the language of the text, trying to make sense of it, philosophical theologian is is doing something similar. I mean, they they certainly consider the text, but then they're also trying to use some other tools like philosophy, uh, like logic, like uh, natural reason, and so they're uh, they're employing these tools to continue to make sense of some things where the Bible uh, may not speak much about. So. Some of the big questions on the nature of God, or the nature of the Trinity, or uh, uh, the Incarnation—these sort of things yeah. where the Bible references them but doesn't unpack them—and so the philosophical theologians really trying to use the philosophical tools to make sense of these these okay. doctrines and ideas.
0: It's interesting because even as you say that, it makes me think that there's so many things that we have taken for granted in the Christian faith that we believe that really have been the gaps have been sort of filled in. And mm-hmm. so what I'm hearing you say is that it really has been in some sort of way like philosophical theologians or people that are relying on those sorts of tools to help fill in those gaps that have become just accepted beliefs today in the church in some ways, yeah?
1: Yeah, yeah, good. Okay. Yeah, trying to trying to make sense of some of these these doctrines and kind of weed out maybe some bad ideas. May not be able to always say what something is, but we can at least weed out some of the ways that something is not.
0: OK, um, so I, I, I want to ask you some questions about your book, your book that I would commend everyone to get. It's called The God Who Trusts and uh, came out in December of last year. And um, uh, even in the way that you wrote it, I've described it to several people as I feel like it fits in this in-between space where you're not writing to scholars. Like um, so it's not like a full on scholarly book but it's also not a full on like in the Christian kind of mainstream pop level books that are kind of like easy to read and get passed around. It fits this sort of like middle space for people who are thought this is how I read it as people who are thoughtfully engaged in their faith, but aren't necessarily looking for a um, a theological tome to engage in. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think a lot of people that listen to podcasts podcast would fit in that sort of a category. And your basic premise, and tell me, tell me if I'm off on this. You you get to like correct me in all the ways that that I've misunderstood you. But oh. so you, you're suggesting you're suggesting with this book that God has hope, that God hopes, that God trusts, and that God has faith, and that has all these implications um, on who God is, on His character, on the way that we relate to Him. Um, that are maybe different than what some of us have classically understood and how we understand the nature of God and His character.
1: Yeah, good, a, good. Fair. I I think what what I'm trying to do in the book, in a lot of ways, is help people unpack and see the 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 logical conclusions of some ideas that they have, uh, some some ideas that they've expressed. Uh, people will say things. But they don't necessarily work it out to its logical end, and so I, I'm trying to kind of connect the pieces, trying to to look at the the consequences of a of a few ideas. So if if somebody says uh, God is love, God loves you, God wants a relationship with you, well, what what exactly does that mean? Uh, how do we unpack that? What are the what are the implications and the consequences of that sort of of statement. And so for me, the, the, the logical end of talking about that God genuinely loves us, including some other sort of criteria that I unpack in the book, it means that God has faith in and with us. And that's part of what a robust relationship is.
0: Yeah. So you talk about, um, I'm going to pull it up here a little bit further in your book. I remember you talk about the idea of God having faith in us. And you said that like, it's not just about like sort of positive thinking. It's not the idea that just like God believes in me. So it's like, yes, this is self-help and I can do this. Um, You said, even though this is not about self-help or the power of positive thinking, I nonetheless imagine that a theology of divine belief can and should lead to positive changes in how we think and live. So, like, could you unpack a little bit like what does it mean that God believes in us? I wanna I wanna talk in a minute about like what does that mean for the character and nature of God? But what does it mean for us mm-hmm. to recognize that God actually has a belief in us?
1: Good, good question. So I think there's something quite powerful about having people believe in you. To have people recognize your value, to recognize your abilities, to think that you can do things that you may not even necessarily think you can do. Uh, I am not a psychologist, so I'm, I'm well outside my, my field in this sort of thing, so I'm not even going to go in that direction, but just based on, on my own experiences as a, uh, a husband, as a parent uh, just someone who has friends, uh, I, I understand what it's like to have someone believe in me or to entrust something that they value to me. And there's, there's something quite empowering about that. And the idea that we've, we've had this, this theology in which we talk about God loves us, but we never say anything about God believes in us or God has faith in us or, or, or trusts us. Uh, I think there's something missing from that, uh, especially if we think that we're supposed to be doing things for the kingdom, that, that we're actually hmm. uh, meant to be active and working and, and doing things. Uh, it, it seems rather odd to me to think that God has no, no belief in us, no, no trust in us, uh, yet expects us to do all sorts of things that seem, yes. seemingly even make a difference to God.
0: Yeah, I mean it's incredibly empowering, and I think um, I had often heard that message communicated in different ways, and I'd, I'd preach that message in different kinds of ways. One of the things that you did in this book that um, that messed with me a bit is if that's actually true, if God actually believes in me, then what has to be true in order for God to have faith in me, and in order for God to believe in me, what has to be true of His character? And you you unpack that in some different ways. Um, But like here's one of the things that you say is that um, God has chosen to be dependent in order to bring out good, bring about goods otherwise impossible, goods such as reciprocal love, cooperation, perhaps even trust itself. So um, in order for God to operate in this kind of way, one of the things that you're suggesting is that God actually is dependent on us, and that He actually, like, in order to believe in us, in order for God to have faith that it requires a dependency. Is that, is that a fair statement?
1: Yeah. So if, if God wasn't dependent on us in some way, if God didn't depend on us to, uh, to partner with God in the ministry of reconciliation, uh, if God didn't depend on us to be caretakers of the earth, if God didn't depend on us to respond to God's, uh, Grace and uh, invitation of reciprocal love. Uh, then I I'm mistaken into what it means for God to be relational. Uh, hmm. If if none of that's true, uh, but I think God is dependent on us to to do these sorts of things. At the very least, uh, unless someone is a a diehard Calvinist, uh, at the very least, God is dependent on us to respond to God's invitation of salvation. Uh, and it seems to me that God genuinely wants everyone to respond to that. Uh, if we can trust the text where it says God desires all to be saved, then then God is dependent on us to to respond to that invitation in a in a positive way. That's the very minimal. I think. I think okay. there's some much more dramatic ways.
0: Yeah. So I imagine that word dependent on us um get some people who uh get a bit concerned about the way that you're talking about God instead of saying that um just that God desires for us to choose him or that God uses us to bring about reconciliation with others like that word dependent you're obviously very uh intentional in using that and i would imagine um just because of my experience with people in the church and christians mm-hmm that people get scared of that idea thinking, well, that diminishes who God is to say that he's dependent on us, makes him somehow less than is God somehow less because he's dependent on us. Does that somehow knock down the character of God and God's, and you talk about God's self-sufficiency in this book. Does that somehow does God, is God not self-sufficient?
1: Gotcha. Uh, so self sufficient is a an interesting term. So, uh, I I have the theology that God did not have to create the universe. I I hold that that God uh, has some assayity in, in that uh, God was complete without the creation. Okay. I I have some friends who disagree with me on that, and that's fine. But God in God choosing to create, I think God chooses to become dependent. Uh, I, you can liken it to someone who, who maybe is just a happy bachelor and they decide they find that that person and they decide to get married. And now they've become dependent upon this person in, huh. in some really unique ways that maybe they could have lived a very productive and happy life with without that, that spouse. But now that they've committed to them, they're dependent on them uh, for reciprocal love and for partnership and for uh, new trajectories in, in life. Or you can think about, you know, some couples who are very content, never having children, and that's fine. Uh, but there are some couples who who decide to have kids. And now their life becomes dependent on how these children respond, how these children grow up and mature. Yeah. Uh, and so and so their lives in some some real and dramatic ways are dependent upon other people. So in God deciding to create a world in which there are goods that are only possible in some sort of reciprocal relationship, God becomes dependent upon us to be faithful partners, to be uh, those who accept God's invitation to work for the kingdom, to uh, preserve the earth, to develop other people, to uh, uh, to fight for justice, uh, all these sorts of things. So, I, hmm. it, And to answer your other question, I don't think it diminishes God to say that God is dependent. Uh, I, I think that there are there are different types of strength. There's a a strength in which someone can just overpower someone else. uh, But there's another sort of strength in which someone can work with someone else to accomplish uh, a certain good. And the idea of if fellowship is that good, then you can't just strong arm someone into fellowship. You have to to work with them. And so it all depends on what you think God's goals are. But I think God's goals are – Communal friendship with us,
0: yeah. So if it's actually relational, it require like it's not actually relational unless this is actually true. Otherwise, it's like pseudo relational. Like it's it's God um, saying he wants relationship, putting on the aura of relationship, but it's not an actual relationship.
1: Right, right. There's yep. not a there's not a reciprocal sort of response to it.
0: Yeah, so within the reciprocalness, one of the things that was really interesting to me that you you say is um, that, um, that love changes us. And so you, you, have, you have some great discussion on what it means to say that God is love, and, and you talk about the idea that love changes us, and you say something to the effect of love not only changes the beloved, the, ones who, the one who's being loved, but it also changes the one who is loving, that changes the lover. And so the mutuality of the love relationship between God and us somehow not only changes us, but it also changes God. Is that, is that a fair yeah. way of saying?
1: Yeah, I think it does. If God genuinely desires that we love God in return, then that love is going to affect, that is, change God. If the love is not returned, then God is frustrated. God is disappointed. God is saddened. If the love is returned, God is overjoyed. God is, uh, uh, is happy and the relationship now takes on uh, a new dimension and, a, and a, a new sort of path. And so uh, I, I'm not saying necessarily that that God somehow becomes better or greater uh, in in this love relationship but i i am saying that uh, god is affected by what we do and and uh who we love and how we love and that's again that's not a bad thing and it seems to me that's what we learn in the parables when when uh the parable of the the prodigal son or the the better title the the waiting father hmm. when, when the son returns The father is overjoyed and notice how many things that the father does, uh, you know, throws the party and throws, you know, runs to the son and does all these sort of things. And there's a change in this father. Uh, We don't even necessarily see a a great change in the son at that point. This is all about the father. Interesting. Uh, And uh, so I, I, I think if we're to trust Jesus's parables to be talking that, especially in this parable, that it's about God, the father, that we see you know, significant change.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because um, as you're describing that, I'm thinking of, um I think we are often scared to, um we think we, maybe scared is the wrong word. We think we have to protect God. And my experience has been, I'm thinking of like, there were times when I was leading a church that we would have some worship songs that people would get really upset about. That There was one that like the chorus is something like, God, remember your people, remember your promises, which is, as you know, directly taken out of the Psalms. And every single time we sang it, every single time, somebody would write me a nasty note saying, you're saying that God um, forgets things and that God can't remember and that we have to remind him. And um, Or there's another song that would talk about the reckless love of God. And every single time you sang it, that somebody would write a note and they'd say, you're diminishing God by saying that his love is reckless. It's not reckless, it's purposeful and intentional. It does what it's supposed to do. We have this like th- this uh, uh idea of what God is supposed to be like that may or may not be dependent on the scriptures that's right. like coming from somewhere else, right? Like it's really like uh, I don't know, it's really like a view of Zeus or something, like it's a Greek picture of God maybe where okay. like we have this picture of perfection and of um uh, of sort of like this distant god who can't be touched and can't be messed with at all and kind of is removed from us and um and then when you find things in the scriptures that potentially suggest otherwise that like our immediate reactions put up walls because we got to protect that picture of god right
1: right good yeah we get this this idea of who god must be and then we search up the scriptures for that and when we find a scripture that Goes against our preconceived notions. We think to ourselves, "Well, that scripture must not mean that. Obviously, <laughs> yeah. I, I I need to reinterpret that, or I need to to change it up because that goes against what I already believe about God." Where, uh, I would I would suggest you know you go into all these texts and you say, "Okay, well, this idea." gives me some, something to think about. And this idea, which seems to be saying something else, gives me some ideas to think about and, and wrestle with them. But um, yeah, we, we, when you were talking about Zeus, I was thinking uh, a little bit more about the, the deist understanding of God, the, the perfect watchmaker okay. who mm-hmm. you know, has this, this idea that, that God has created. The deist holds that, that God has created the world that is running so perfectly that it's, it's like a perfect uh, clock. And it's just winding down exactly the way it's supposed to be. Uh, and so, you know, God doesn't have to really get uh, intimately involved with the world uh, because it's it's just playing out the way it wants. I, I think there's that temptation that some people have that they want a God who is, who is so in control and set everything up that it's playing out exactly like it needs to. And then on the other hand, we have this view of God where God is intervening every five minutes in our lives. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was, uh, making enchiladas and I couldn't find, uh, the, the, cumin and then, uh, thank God, you know, he intervened and had me see it and, Oh now you know, dinner saved. And, uh, and so we have these, these kind of two extremes where, where God is doing everything and God is doing nothing. And somehow they're both supposed to be perfectly in line with who God is. And, um, yeah both of these may be problematic
0: well what's the what's the better way of thinking about it cuz I'd imagine the better way isn't like let's just find a happy medium between the two of them is there a better way of engaging in like uh how is god interacting well,
1: what's wrong with happy mediums I mean, okay
0: maybe i <laughs> uh, i just didn't peg you I, as uh, like let's find a happy medium between these two kind of guy
1: right uh, i i think that there there may be So I I don't want to go to one extreme or the other. Both of them are are, are problematic for me. So the relationship that God may have with us is that uh, everything isn't working out exactly as God planned. Hmm. Uh, That there are some things that that God uh, has to intervene with, that God may have to uh, help straighten out. So in this sense, I, I think God has a plan. God has a certain way that God desires the world uh, work and play out and move towards a, a, a goal. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think God is intervening. And this is a weird word, the, the idea of intervening as, as if God is somehow yeah. distant and somehow uh, jetting in that that's a bad picture. I, I think God is constantly active in the world. There's never a moment where God is not acting in the world. Uh, but I think in that activity, there are times in which God allows us the space to be genuine partners with God. Uh, God isn't uh, crowding us out. God is allowing us the freedom to participate. So I'm not sure that's a happy medium. Maybe that's a uh, a disgruntled medium. I don't know.
0: I'll take disgruntled medium. Um, so that makes me think, I haven't talked to you about this. So I'm genuinely really curious. I've been genuinely cu- really curious about all this, but it, it made me think of this. One of the one of the things that a phrase, I'll probably, uh, I'm not trying to throw anyone under the bus by saying this, but one of the phrases that I've been hearing quite a bit that's been a bit frustrating for me in the midst of all that, we're in the midst of the the COVID-19 quarantine junk right now as we're recording this. And a phrase that I continually hear from people is, um, God's still in control. God is in control right now. And I want to ask them, like, well, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that God has created the coronavirus and that this is what that what's happening right now is a result of that? And that the 150,000 people that have died so far in the United States is like God is controlling that? Do you mean the people that are losing their jobs because of the economic shutdown right now? That God is controlling that? Like what? What do you mean by that? Um I, I'm curious if, if I were to say to you right now, like, yeah, COVID, this sucks and this is hard, but God's in control right now. Like, how would you respond to me?
1: I would ask you the question: What do you mean by God's in control? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's not helpful.
1: That would that would genuinely be my first question. I, I'm not sure what people mean by that. Uh, Roger Olson has, uh, several books in which he, he makes the case. God is not in control, but God is in charge.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: I, I think what he's trying to say is that ultimately God's God's the authority, but there are some things that happen whether they're outside of God's control or, uh, Exactly how he means it, I, I'm not sure. And here I, I have to confess, uh, I, I'm still working out this this part of my theology with a lot of fear and trembling, trying to understand uh, how much power God has in the world, uh, how much power uh, God has to, to intervene. Uh, and if God has that power, why hasn't God used it more? Yeah. Um, and again, there's a lot of varying... Theologies that that go on, on on how to deal with this. From some saying that uh, because God is love, God has no control of the situation, to others who say it is sheer mystery, uh, to those who say everything that happens is God ordained. Right. Uh, I'm I'm still. I I don't think it's God ordained. Uh, if it is. I think God has uh, a lot of explaining to do. Um, if God is utterly powerless to do anything about it, I'm not sure what hope I have for some sort of final reconciliation yeah. uh, for God of being able to to do something about some of the horrendous evils that have taken place. Uh, I don't want to just chalk it all up to mystery, so I'm I'm still hammering this out. Uh, I'm not sure I will hammer it out.
0: Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. I love the idea that like you um, as a philosophical theologian who's (laughs) writing and publishing books and uh, all of all of the stuff that you're doing and teaching and all of that, that you're like, well, I'm still figuring this thing out. I'm still asking questions. I still feel unresolved in this. And I think like, beyond just the specifics of what you are working out, that's one of the postures that I have a deep appreciation for you in. And I think um, we need more of that in the church of this like humility of having convictions that like, yeah, like you have things that you think are true of God that you feel convicted by and that you're holding to. And at the same time, it feels loose enough to me that it's like, I might be wrong and I want to keep growing and learning and discovering and not like hold on to that so tightly that I mi- that I miss finding what's true.
1: Sure, sure. Good. Well uh, I, I I appreciate that. Uh I don't know if too many pastors would want a church filled with people like me, but but one or two.
0: <laughs> they don't tithe you know. very well. Yeah. What? <laughs> I'm not saying you. I'm saying oh. people asking lots of questions. We can't we can't have that.
1: Interesting. Um uh, but yeah, now, now and then the pastor needs someone who's going to go to, to him or her and say, have, have you thought about it this way? Or, uh, I have a joke with my, my current pastor. I, I have a heresy sign that I keep in my Bible <laughs> and, uh, I, I have actually taken it out during one of his sermons. Um,
0: and I would I, hate I do it- preaching to you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, and so it was play it was playful but I meant it.
0: Uh, I <laughs> did know. you actually mean heresy? Or did you mean like I think you're off the beaten path here? Cuz he said
1: he,
0: he said that uh, uh God broke his
1: leg so that uh his his life plans would change and so that's what led him into the ministry and I'm like I don't see God as a leg breaker. So <laughs> uh so oh. I've said so there a was, few sermons
0: was, where I'd like to have that sign.
1: Yeah. It's uh you know, they're easy to print out, you know. So yeah, yeah. Oh, there it is. So I like right it. I, got, I like I got my my Bible here. It's it's right there. So
0: uh Well, I'd like to encourage all the Mike's podcast listeners to print up a heresy sign. Your pastors are going to be really appreciative of you uh, showing that. Uh, oh, they can't see it right now. We're watching church on TV. They don't know.
1: Well, so I was I was leading a Zoom class and uh, a heresy sign came out for me, uh, which <laughs> which I appreciated. Uh, uh, but yeah, if if you have a uh, a Facebook Live, there's room for comments. You can you can create a heresy sign and uh, post go. the picture. You know, it's I like it. We, we have to be creative.
0: I like it, which leads me into you and I were texting about doing this interview. And one of the things that you wrote on the text message, I actually don't even remember how it got to this. I just wrote down this part of it. You said, I don't defend heresy. I encourage it. Right. <laughs> I, <laughs> I told you that I was going to need you to unpack that a little bit here.
1: Right. So, yeah, so that, that was a bit tongue in cheek.
0: Uh, sure. Uh,
1: but at the same time, I, I, I do encourage people to, to think differently, to, to raise questions, to, to give counterpoints. Uh, I, I think there's a real problem in a lot of churches and with a lot of pastors because they demand, they, they want unity, they rightly want unity, but they mistake unanimity for it. And mm-hmm. so they want everyone to think alike, to fall in line. And that's what they think a healthy church is. But the problem is, uh, Jesus wasn't able to pull that off. <laughs> um, what? So, so it seems to me Jesus was able to somehow pull together unity, even though he didn't have unanimity. Uh, they they weren't unanimous in all of their thinking. They they fought against each other. They, you know, we had a zealot and a tax collector. I, obviously, there was some some different thinking. They're amongst the, uh, not only the 12, but the, uh, the extended disciples. So I, I think the idea of encouraging, uh, and here I'm using the scare quotes, uh, heresy, I, I think it takes a, a, lot of, a lot of skill and a lot of strength in a pastor to be able to, to lead a church in which uh, free thinking uh, is encouraged. I mean, any anybody can lead a church where everybody thinks alike.
0: Yeah, I um, I think one of the more beautiful expressions of the church that we could see today would be a church that's made up of a bunch of people who find Christ in common. the The communion table brings them together. Mm-hmm. Um, but if the communion table wasn't bringing them together, they wouldn't be getting together. That it's like we we have, uh, and then we have space to like. I became really convicted years ago of what Dr. King would talk about. I started calling it a pseudo piece. It's like this fake piece where like mm-hmm. you don't ever deal with issues beneath the surface. And he was talking about it in issues as it related to racial injustice that like as long as he says like you settle for this piece that it seems like we all get along. But like it's not real peace because we haven't dealt with issues of justice. There's all this stuff beneath the surface. Mm-hmm. And my experience was a lot of times in the church we had a pretend piece, a pseudo piece. As long as we don't talk about these differences, we all get along and we pretend like we have unanimity when actually like what would be more beautiful is to be able to have like really honest conversations to be in different places and to be able to hold that tension together. Um, And for that to be like this unique place in our social construct where everyone is moving into these echo chambers and tribalism and that the church instead of embracing that actually pushes against that.
1: Yeah. Good good but that requires that we trust one another getting back to that idea that yes, requires please. that requires that we're we're willing to to concede that uh we're not perfect in our ideas in our political theological these these various ideas that we could be wrong uh or at the very least that somebody has a right to to think differently than than me, even if I think they are horrifically wrong. Okay. They're, they're allowed to, to be wrong in these, these areas, but that's, that's difficult. By the way, that's, that's difficult for me. Sometimes I'm, I'm watching what's going on on Facebook and, uh, my, my forehead is getting very sore from all the face palming that I'm doing. So (laughs) uh, I just, yeah.
0: Facebook is a difficult place to live right now. It's not, Um, it's a difficult place to try to be that sort of a church right now. It doesn't encourage, um, the medium doesn't encourage that. Um, but to circle us back to your book so that we can, so we can end on your beautiful, wonderful book that everyone should buy the God who trusts you. Um, you start moving it towards the end. I don't feel like throughout your whole book, I don't think you're just having this like purely academic exercise where you're just like, here's these interesting thoughts about God. You're constantly Bring it back to like, here's like, this has an effect on how we relate to God. This changes how we engage with him. And, and like, maybe on like the last page of your book, right towards the end, you say, we should have faith as God has faith. The idea that, um, um we are, we are learning not just how to love from God. We are actually learning how to have faith from God. Um, would you mind just kind of like closing out our time, talking a little bit about, What do we learn from God about how to have faith?
1: Yeah, good question, Mike. That should be the name of your podcast, Good Questions with Mike. (laughs) Uh, So just as we we learn the nature of love from God and, and looking at the scriptures, looking at the person of Jesus, I think that... If, if we hold that, that, that God has created this world and is, is genuinely trusting us to partner with God, uh, to covenant with God. By the way, that whole idea of covenanting is mm-hmm. about the idea of partnering with, of, of uh, taking up a mantle to work with uh, this, this other person. So what do we learned? Uh, how can we learn from God's faith? it's interesting if we believe God never gives up on us, God is, God is believing, God is trusting, uh, God is hoping that there's, there's always more to, to who we are, to, to who we can be, that that God's love is patient. And so uh, God hasn't, hasn't given up on, on any of us individually, and God hasn't given up on uh, humanity as a, as a whole. What, whatever one may think about uh, the story of uh, Noah and the flood, and 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 mm-hmm. all of that sort of stuff. I think the takeaway from that from that story is that God had ample reason to lose faith in humanity, but hung in there. Maybe it was a very thin uh, faith and a very thin hope, but it was it was still there, uh, even though you know every person uh, was wicked. And so we can see from the scriptures time and time again, God continually uh, working to to uh, help present us as as uh, Christ-like, uh, as mature in Christ, as trustworthy. Uh, one of my recently, one of my favorite parables is the parable of the talents. Because you you get the story of this this master who comes and shows trust in these servants before they ask for it, he just gives them the money, saying, mm. "I'm going on a trip. Here's here's your uh, here's your talents. I'll be back." And so uh, the one the one servant who who was the one who uh, who really blows it is the one who doesn't recognize that he's been trusted. Um he He acts out of fear and uh, has this idea that that God or that the master in this case uh, is not trusting, and so he proved himself untrustworthy so circling back to this idea I, I think if we understand that even in those times where we're beginning to to lose faith or we're having doubts, I think we should hang in with the idea that that even where uh, my faith is incomplete. God's faith is complete, hmm. and uh, it's it's okay if I doubt and and I lose faith and uh, I'm feeling hopeless because God has enough hope and faith and belief for both of us.
0: It's good. Oh, thank you so much for being on here. It was really fun talking with you on this. Yeah,
1: this was good.
0: Um, And I would, uh, I'm sure that this, for some people, some of you listening to this, that you're like, but what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And I'll just tell you, like, um, uh, Dr. Holton gets into a a bit of the weeds in some of this, in some ways that I think, like, if you have questions and stuff, um, looking at his book, The God Who Trusts, will take you down some paths where he unpacks some passages, where he unpacks some philosophical ideas and some um, theological ideas that this kind of fits within. So I think it'll be a helpful resource for many of you.
1: Absolutely. Thanks, Mike.
0: All right. Thanks for being with us. Thanks everybody for uh, joining us on Mike's podcast.